chapter 25 as we make our way through the Old Testament. A very provocative chapter awaits us. Numbers 25, it's a short chapter considering the others we've waded through. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, as we consider a rather infamous incident here in Numbers 25, we pray that your Holy Spirit would take your living word and rightly divide it through our study, through our listening, through our prayerful reflection, that we would hear what your Holy Spirit is saying to each one of our hearts for good, for blessing, for edification. In Jesus' name, amen. Growing up, I've mentioned that I was a real fan of that black and white television episodes of Superman. And it's way back in the day. Uh, That guy was unstoppable. Thank you, all one of you who are... (laughs) a half century or older. (laughs) Superman was a true hero. You know, superhuman in so many ways. You know the story. He was born on the planet Krypton. He was rocketed as an infant to Earth as Krypton was disintegrating. Now, he was raised by a very kindly farmer and his wife in Kansas. And uh, it's pretty obvious right away that this guy's from another time and place. He's faster than a speeding bullet. He is more powerful than a locomotive. You know how it goes? And what else is he? He's able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Oh, you are older than I thought. Well, yes, my favorite part was when he, the bad guy would shoot at him and he would just catch the bullet and give it back to him. <laughs> I just liked that guy. And, uh, you know, but the man of steel, though endowed with supernatural powers and strength, had a weakness. He was vulnerable. A chink in his mighty armor. It was called green kryptonite. And it was the stuff that actually destroyed Krypton, the planet. And when he got around it, it was funny, but he was nauseated. And he was, uh, his powers were nullified. He was immobilized with pain when it was anywhere near him. In fact, prolonged exposure would eventually kill him. Now, for the past few chapters, Numbers 22, 23... And 24, we've met a people who are very much like Superman. They are undefeatable, unstoppable, unlike everyone else. We've just been through uh, three, four, five oracles from Balaam that told us just those things. That these were distinct people, distinct from all the other nations. God, Yahweh, the I Am, he was on their side. There'd be no reason for gloom. No misfortune with them, because the Lord was with them. No sorcery or black magic. All the powers of hell could not change their blessed state. God had blessed them, and that was destined to happen. Cursed be their opponents, and blessed be their advocates. Destiny to overcome. You know, thus saith the witch doctor, even. Hired to cast a spell over them. Uh, These advancing Hebrews over the hills. Um, The king of Moab was the one who hired this guy. And what does he say? He says, these guys got superhuman powers. I can't conjure up anything. Nobody can defeat them. But listen, 
I have an idea. Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. And by the way, fasten your seatbelts. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal. Well, that's not exactly what he was just asked to do, was it? All right. We'll just think about that. Verse 6. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman. Now, the Midianites were nomads living in Moab. So the term Moabite and Midianite can be interchanged. All right? So he brings a, a Moabitess or a Midianite woman, this man, to his family right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they're weeping at where? The entrance to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the holy place. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for my honor and among them, among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore, tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. The name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite family. And the name of the Midianite woman who was put to death was Kuzbi, daughter of Zur, a tribal chief of a Midianite family. Both of these two were well-to-do privileged kids. The Lord said to Moses, Treat the Midianites now as enemies and kill them, because they treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the, in the affair of Peor and their sister Kuzbi, the daughter of the Midianite leader, the woman who was killed when the plague came as a result of Peor. Well, welcome this evening. And we're going to take a look at this. You know, one of these Old Testament incidents that leaves one a little unsettled upon your first read-through, for sure. Uh, Pastors tend to grimace about passages like these, especially the spear episode. And the Lord's applauding of it. And we're going to look at that in real good detail. Um, It's definitely not for the faint of heart. The Bible is as real as real gets, man. And uh, we're going to take a look at this. Profound, profound insights. Wonderful, helpful, life-saving encouragement for the Christian And as Paul puts it, the Christian upon whom the end of the age has come, this very incident is mentioned in passing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, written down for us upon whom the end of the age has dawned. Christians living in our age and time. The Bible in the New Testament says this is just a a story. This was written for you and for me 
to warn us, to help us, to keep us on the straight and narrow. And so we're going to take a look at that now. Uh, the sorcerer for hire, Balaam, has done his best to curse Israel, but he has failed, and now he still wants some money. And so he's come up with a way to please his employer by whispering in his ear, by looking around and saying, I've got an idea. In short, there's no way you're going to overcome them militarily or by black magic. There's nothing you can do or anybody in the whole world, no devil in hell can stop this from being blessed. But maybe you can help them destroy themselves. Now, how do I know, how do we know, that it was Balaam's idea? Well, six chapters from now, it's going to say in Numbers 31 and verse 16, I'll quote it for you. It was Balaam's advice that was the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord with the sexual immorality and idolatry which resulted in the devastating plague that struck the Lord's people. Plain and simple, this was all Balaam's idea, you see. Now, we're going to take a look at this. Let's walk through this incident. Here's the paraphrase of verses 1 through 3. It was while camping under the acacia grove, is what shatim means. It's where they worshipped Baal. The, the correct way to pronounce Baal is Baal, but it's where they did their little devil worship up on the hills under the acacia trees. And now Israel's up there somehow. While they were camped there, that's when it happens, the Moabite women, temple prostitutes, invite the soldier boys to sex-centered pagan worship celebration where they'll offer bulls on the altar to evil spirits, have a big steak barbecue, and become unrestrained in their sexual passions. They bow down and worship the gods of the Moabites, and in this way, Israel gives their hearts over their allegiance, and they partner with Baal, which infuriates the God who saved them. So that's one through three. The strategy from hell, if you're taking notes, Roman numeral number one. Clever, <laughs> diabolical, quite logical. Get the deep sea diver. <laughs> you know, they jump over the side of the boat and they're supplied with the oxygen from the boat. Get the diver to step on his own oxygen hose. You see? Now, if in every way he's, you're prevented from harming that diver, that he's got a supernatural God-destined victory and protection, maybe you can get him to snip the, the cord himself. You know, that's really what he's after. Short-circuit the connection of their power. Listen, over and over again, what did Balaam say? Their distinction is in their God. Their power comes from him. They have the strength of a wild ox. They have the determination of a hungry lion. Nobody's going to stop them because, and it didn't never ended right there. It always was because of God and their connection with God. Therefore, if we can short circuit the flow of that power, if you could break that, if you could tie a knot in their umbilical cord, get them to disconnect from the source of their blessing. Get them to turn on him so that he'll have to paddle them and not bless them. Let's go about it that way. So, Balaam's up there at the shrine. You know he's hauled him around to all the different shrines. That's where he's tried to bless, um, curse Israel. But he ended up blessing them from these under the acacia trees, right? So Balaam sees these myrrh and aloe-scented pretty prostitutes. They're sacrificing livestock, bulls. They're eating that meat. And Balaam gets the idea. Sent up those pretty women, those soldier boys. You know how long they've been out in the desert? Do you know what they eat every day? It's very good. 
But they eat the same thing every single day. Invite them to a party. The smell of perfume, beautiful women, T-bone steaks, turn up the music, a little fermented drink on the table, and you're going to get them to bow their knee to Baal, and then he's going to be ticked. Do it. And they did. And it worked. The boys fell. The boys always fall. Boys fall. Men stand. So, onward, let's consider the source of the strategy. Why don't you turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Last book in the Bible. The letter to Pergamos there. After affirming the church, the Lord is speaking to the church. He picks it up, or I should say we'll pick it up in verse 14. Nevertheless, church, the Lord's speaking now, I have a few things against you. You have people there in your congregation who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Ah, so now we know there's a teaching. There's, it's not just, I mean, it's labeled as a doctrine or a, a false teaching. And this is what it means when it calls Balaam's teaching. It means the perversion of grace. There was somebody in that church false teachers who were saying, hey, does it not say that where sin abounds, grace even more so? Therefore, if we increase sinning, what will we increase? We will increase the grace. Paul says, though, they, don't, they always leave out the one verse. Paul goes on to say, shall we continue sinning that grace may abound? God forbid. You see, Paul knows that, that the Holy Spirit knows that false teachers would come in and say something as perverted as, hey, it's free grace, you're covered, it's none of works, go ahead and compromise morally. And so this is what was going on. The teaching is uh, even clearer in the, the epistle of Jude. It's only one chapter. Verse 4, for certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change, listen right here, who changed the grace of God into a license for sinning and denied Jesus, our only sovereign Lord. You see, it's, that's the understanding that we can be neighborly with these sinful people. We can be tolerant and relevant. Yahweh understands it's an altar, it's a sacrifice. It's the same bull that you would give to Yahweh. It's just going to a different kind of God there. After all, all religions are the same. And doesn't he understand it? Isn't there grace? Let's coexist. Let's be inclusive, man. There are neighbors. The Moabites are related to us. Why can't we just cozy up and kind of do as they do, accept their core values? Is it really so wrong? Are we really hurting anybody? We just had a party. We just kind of enjoyed ourselves. We, we let things go a little bit. We relaxed. We're reaching out to them as well. We don't want to be narrow-minded or judgmental or uptight. Why do you want to put Yahweh in a box, man? Do you see? Do you hear it? That's what it is. And it comes in to compromise you. So that God has to chastise you. Now the hellish thinking keeps seekers from getting saved. And it keeps believers from blessing. You see, when you think like that, sin really is an equal opportunity destroyer. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or no. The Bible says just clearly, um, the one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. Destruction, period. Whoever the one is, 
Doesn't matter. That's Galatians 6 8. Romans 8 13. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. Do we need to qualify that? Period. Live according to your sinful nature. Give way to whatever prompts, whatever red light lights up, push it, do it, whatever feels good, do it, whatever, live for self, break God's laws, sin against your conscience. He says it'll bring death. Listen to how James puts it. A person is tempted by his own evil desire. He's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Period. It doesn't matter who's doing it, enlightened Christian or no. It's downhill spiral unto destruction. And so really the real problem is something called apostasy, which comes from words that mean to fall away from. And so the, the big problem is, is the bowing of the knee, and your verse says yoking themselves what a terrible picture of that, a yoke, a livestock yoke, where you partner with the evil one. And that's what makes Yahweh see red. Now, do you remember Samson in Judges 13 through 16? Listen to this. See, this is who I thought of. He, Samson's supernatural. He's known for being the, the Superman of the Old Testament. And what was the secret to his strength? Well, everybody thought it was his hair. But his uncut hair was symbolic of his unbroken vows to God. He was a Nazarite. And so he wasn't cutting his hair because he had a special covenant with God. The long hair, the uncut hair, meant he was faithful to God. And so, let me read it to you. Then Delilah says to him, how can you keep saying you love me when you won't confide in me? She's trying to take him down because she's an enemy. She's a Philistine. She's from one of these towns that we're talking about under the acacia trees. This is the third time you've made a fool of me. and You haven't told me the secret of your great strength with such nagging. She prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. No razor's ever been used on my head because I have a, I've been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. It's all about my vow. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. Is it the, is it the hair? Or is it his adulterous sinning with Philistine women? That's what it is. Now, let us... Cut the hair to match what you've been doing sexually. You've cut the vow. And when you cut the vow, you've stepped on your air hose. Now you're in trouble. And it goes on. When Delilah saw that, he told her everything. She sent word to the Philistine camp. Come back once more. He bared his heart to me. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with this silver in their hands. After putting, because they paid after putting him to sleep on her lap. Sound familiar? She called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are here. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out just like before and I'll shake myself free. But he didn't know the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to the grinding grain in the prison. And the good news is his hair started to grow again because he's one of us. He's a Christian. He's in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. You'll see him. But this is what happened to a Christian asleep on his knees, bowing before the Philistines. Boom. Broken vow, broken strength. You will no longer be able to do that which normal men cannot do because your strength was in your relationship with God. You forfeited the blessing of that when you've turned your heart away. 
and committed adultery. Now, if we, the Lord, walked away is a symbol of he's grieved. He's turned. He's going to let you uh, learn from that mistake. You see, it's the same thing. The Christian application, the secret to your and my supernatural power and blessing is our yoke to the Lord. Mess with that and you'll undo everything. Number two, Roman numeral number two, the deadly consequence, three through five, paraphrased. The Lord's, the Lord is furious and commands Moses to put the responsible leaders to death for this outrage so that God's wrath would be appeased and diverted from Israel. So Moses instead tells the leaders to execute judgment against those of the clan that actually worshipped Baal. So the deadly consequence is the wages of sin is death. Somebody's got to pay. The Old Testament is saying the wages of sin is death. Somebody's got to pay for this. All right? So let's put the leaders... uh, Let's put this on the leaders. They're responsible. Now, the awful remedy to this, somebody has to pay. It's, a, it's, a, it's clearly in the law that they have sinned, and it's clearly a capital offense. And so here's what one writer, Duguid, said about this. Those in charge of the people were to bear the covenantal responsibility for the people's sin so that the people as a whole would be spared. The death of the leaders and the dishonorable exposure of their corpses would not only demonstrate to the people the seriousness of their sin, but would atone for it, turning the Lord's fierce anger away from his rebellious people. Now, notice here what happens. Really, you've got to pay attention here. Now, in fact, the leaders are not dealt with, one. Number two. Rather, the leaders are told to deal with the actual perpetrators. Number three, that doesn't happen. Everybody's immobilized. They're paralyzed. They're shocked. Do we really got to kill the leaders? Do we really got to kill these guys who just, you know, one nine of full of fun, red-blooded American, whoop, red-blooded Hebrew boys, come on, a little fun. A little bowing of the knee, a little worshiping somebody else. The next scene, you don't see anything. All you see is people sitting around crying in front of the tabernacle. Instead of acting to carry out God's judgment, they, including Moses, are paralyzed, immobilized. Failure to act is going to cost more people their lives. Now, I want to make a point about this. Putting off the right thing to do because it's painful, awkward, or devastating, will always make matters way worse. This happens all the time. (laughs) You know, I'll be counseling people to get married, premarital counseling, and something terrible will will come up time and time again. Now, like he likes to smoke pot, and he's been smoking pot for five years, and she finds out. Well, she, she doesn't want to call it off. Well, you know, when you have two babies and he's smoking pot and, and checking out porn sites and not holding down a job, when you find out these things, you, don't, you want to avoid the hard thing to do at the moment, but by avoiding that, you're going to make it worse. God said... Uh, A plague is coming. Something's going to come down real fast. Israel's about, we're about to lose Israel. Israel's about to disperse with no Savior coming into the world without an Israel. So we've got to take some action. So A, do A. Or how about B, do B. But no, we're just sitting around. We don't want to do it, and it's going to get worse. A man who should check himself into rehab. He just waits and waits and waits. Parents who need to show tough love, just wait and wait and wait. It only gets worse. When God puts it on your heart to do something, and do it now, and you say, it's too hard. Trust me, you're not seen hard. You're going to about to see hard. (laughs) Amen? You all look very, very thoughtful right now. (laughs) Number three. 
two tragedies come from them dragging their heels like this. Number one, worse and more willful sinning is encouraged. Now here we get to the interesting part. While there's a, paraphrase, while there's a worship service going on, the people are flooding God's altar with tears, mourning, crying out to God, with Moses standing there. One of the young princes of Israel waltzes through the mourners with a foreign, excuse me, hooker on his arm and goes into the tent to do their thing. Now, you know what encouraged this, don't you? There are no consequences. Moses, you sap, he's thinking. Everybody's sitting around. Look, this is a new day. We are leading these young men into freedom. There's a new postmodern Israel. We're going to get together with these Midianites, and, and we're going to have our cake and eat it too. And nothing's happening, no bad thing. And he comes right through the tabernacle. And let me tell you something, friend. The word for tent there, very rare. It is not the word for tent, usually. It means vaulted canopy. They go into the tabernacle. You're, you're not stopping us. We, we want this to continue. We're going to lead the way. Follow us, men. And he takes her on the arm through the congregation and through one of the rooms, one of the flaps of the sanctuary, and they go in and everybody's sitting around sobbing until the hero, Phineas, whose job, may I say, is to, from Numbers chapter 3, the priest's job was to be armed with a sword to, to protect the sanctuary from sinful defilement. Numbers chapter 3, just check it out. They were flanked around with swords, saying, don't let anybody come and defile this place. Phineas is only going to be doing his job. You know, the second thing that happens because of their dragging their feet is the lethal plague. A lethal plague breaks out. They're not taking care of it. The anger's coming down. God says, nobody's paying for this. Where's the payment? Okay, boom, boom, boom. And now people are falling over. People are dying. They're all sitting around crying. Enter the hero. Roman numeral number four. Enter the, he the hero. When Aaron's grandson, Phineas. The priest saw this. He gets up from the service, grabs a spear, follows them into the tent, and puts a spear through the both of them, skews them both in the act. Boom. The plague stops, but not before 24,000 people die. Aaron's boy, Aaron has just died. Aaron's son is the high priest, Eleazar. Eleazar doesn't do anything. He's the one who should. His boy, 18 years old, his boy sees red, looks around. People are dying. He gets it. He knows the command. They have spears and swords to keep this from happening. And he walks in with the prostitute into church. And they're getting it on in the next room. He picks up a spear. And he goes in and says, not on my watch. And then they're so involved, they don't even realize what's happening. And they get skewered. Sorry. <laughs> I wasn't going to make a joke, but it sounded so serious, you know. I was going to say shish kebab, but I'm not going to. Because it's so serious. Adam, you were so right. <laughs> Adam said, ah, I think it's too serious for that. <laughs> you were right. I'm giving you a raise. <laughs> yeah, you all heard that, and he'll let me know that as well. Um, he'll be playing the tape in the office over and over on a, one of those things. 
It's time for a scholarly word called excursus. It means a digression to expand on a topic not related to the topic. Here's what I want to talk to you about. How to think about God saying, finally, thank you, spear him through, God applauding. How do we think about that? How do we think about Old Testament uh, dilemmas such as God now in the next verse will say, treat the Midianites like enemies and wipe them out. How do you understand that? All right, so I want to talk to you about how to understand the Old Testament. Just a few little moments. First of all, the Old Testament is incomplete without its fulfillment, the New Testament. You can't know the whole truth about the tulip just by the bulb. You need the bulb to grow the tulip, and you'll know about the tulip. You cannot just have the bulb and say, I'm going to uh, create a doctrine, per se. Everything you get from the Old Testament, you must now see through the completed work and life of Jesus Christ and the teaching that accompanies the gospel. That is how we understand everything in the Old Testament. First of all, the Old Testament laws. The Old Testament laws, there's three, remember? The moral law found in the Old Testament is good today. It will never be okay to lie and to covet and to commit adultery. That law never goes away. In fact, the Bible calls that Christ's law. Paul says, I'm not under the law, though I am under Christ's law. Secondly, there's the ceremonial law, the Levitical law, the sacrifices, the holiness issues. Those are completed in Christ. He's our holiness. We don't have to worry about dietary holiness matters because Mark 7 verse 19 says that in Christ all things are clean. He is our holiness. He has been made our righteousness. And so the Old Testament ceremony and religious laws done in Christ. The Old Testament civil laws that guided the nation, the penal code, gone. We don't look at that. We are not a nation. We are a church. There's church governance issues in the New Testament that swallows up laws such as the penal codes of Old Testament Israel. Does that make sense so far? So now, when you've got an instance where Phineas, under God's anointing, takes a spear and harpoons, I'm sorry, harpoons two fornicators in church, and God says, finally, a guy with a spine, I'm going to reward him. How do I think about that? Well, first of all, <laughs> you have to think about what, through the eyes of Jesus Christ's work, by doing that, the plague stopped. God said, somebody has to die. The plague will stop. Jesus, in John 19, is speared. Right through. Jesus, and by doing so, Jesus' death, sin is gone. And it's atoned for, and God's wrath is turned from his people. That is a picture of Jesus Christ being speared. He was pierced for our transgressions. That's a beautiful picture. It's not a call to use violence on the wicked. Only foolish and ignorant so-called believers would take something like this where the New Testament clearly tells us the way to deal with evildoers is not kill them. It's to love them, to preach the gospel to them, to pray for them. So if I ever want to get my understanding of how to deal with an evildoer, I don't take Phineas as my example. Phineas is doing his job well unto the Lord. I must not do Phineas's job. My job is to do my father's business. And what is my father's business? Is to preach the gospel 
to make disciples of all nations, to teach them to obey everything Christ has commanded us. That's my job. My job is not to be a vigilante and kill abortion doctors and then say, look at Phineas. And that's what they do. That's exactly what they do. They go to this verse and they say, the righteousness of God and the zeal of God came upon me. I'm sorry. I'm going to check myself right there. You're being a fool. The New Testament teaches us otherwise. I have nothing more to say about that because I'm getting mad at the guy. (laughs) And clearly you are not him. So I cannot no longer direct my gaze upon him through you. Um, Furthermore, the command to destroy the Midianites, please, number one, He's given them, as I've said many times to you, and I will repeat because this keeps coming up and there are people who haven't heard the last little explanation. Number one, the Midianites have heard. Balaam knows the gospel. He preaches the gospel better than preachers on Sunday morning. Everybody's fully aware they can repent and come to know Yahweh anytime. But they oppose him and they continue in their sin. He's given them 400 years. Rahab a harlot, prostitute, Canaanite. She repents. She's saved. Not only is she saved, as I've told you many times, she becomes an ancestress of the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes through her seed. He's related in the flesh to Rahab, a Canaanite. So when he says, wipe them all out, he's thinking one thing. Israel's about to disintegrate. We lose Israel. You're all damned. Because the Savior of the world must come through an intact nation called Israel. You lose Israel right there. You're about to lose her. She's about to go crazy. She's worshiping Baal. They're having uh, sexual intercourse. You're going to lose the Jewish thing. You're going to have non-Jewish babies. You're going to lose the seed. And there goes Jesus. So no wonder with all of that context, yeah, You're coming against, and you won't come and repent. And you're jeopardizing the birth of the Savior into the world. I'm sorry. Wipe them out for the sake of the world. It's terrible. Who wants to talk about that? That's just the truth. Let's finish up. 10 through 16, a quick paraphrase. The Lord affirms Phineas' zeal. Because he's taken a stand for my honor, I'll promise him peace. To him and his descendants after him, they will enjoy peace. By the way, here's the names of the two culprits in the tent. A prince from Israel and a princess from Midian. The Lord then says, the Midianites are now enemies. Treat them as such. You do know that he told them originally, don't mess with the Midianites or the Moabites. You don't have to. They're related. So it wasn't his natural intent until they stumbled Israel and refused to repent. Uh, By the way, I love the by the way, where it says, by the way, here are their names and here are their father and mother's name and here's the tribe. You want to know who it was? It just wasn't a guy in the tent. Let's give his name and his address. And you know who the girl was? This is her first name, her middle name, and her last name. Why? Why is that? It's a picture of hell and judgment. On that last day, the books will be open and everything done in darkness will be revealed. Names, dates, it's all there. The dead are judged by the books and the deeds done, recorded in the books. Yeah, by the way, let me tell you who that was. We, on the other hand, he has amnesia. As far as the east is from the west, have I removed your sins from you. The legacy that belongs to the children of the Lord is amnesia on the day of judgment. When it comes to our confessed sins, that is, total amnesia. He says, I will myself to forget your sins and place them in the sea of forgetfulness. And when God says, I am forcing myself to forget what you did, 
under the blood that's been paid and speared through by your replacement, your substitute, I will myself to say, I, I can't recall it. And he will not recall it. But for those who said, you know what? I don't care about your son. I'm good enough. He'll say, let, let me explain the whole matter to you. Every idle word, every careless word you ever said in your entire life, I hold you to account. Let's start from when you were four. He's just speaking. On that day, quoting Jesus, men will give an account for every careless word ever spoken. And let's just start with the words. Then we're going to go to the secret of your heart. Every single sinful secret of a lifetime exposed. Names, dates, everything. Us covered. The word atone, to cover, to forget about, to bury. Baptism, buried, gone, washed away. That's the gospel. That's why we preach to these people. Come under. Get your sins washed away. Have God give you amnesty. That's where we get the word amnesia. Amnesty is on the church age. And finally, he says, you know what, Phineas? Peace for you and peace for your children. Phineas's deed is going to imprint on his kid. He's going to say, you know, my pops was that, that guy with the spear. He, he took a stand. You know, the spiritual application, of course, for us, is that we, we take a stand for truth. That we don't spear people, that we speak the truth in love. That we get a spine and stand up and say, you know, excuse me, but could you stop gossiping? You know, living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, that's, that's wrong. Not in a self-righteous, pious, pompous way, but in a humble way that understands there but the grace of God go I. Prayerful, not spear-throwing, but speaking the truth in love. So God re- rewards us. He says, those who honor me, I will honor. And he said to Phineas, you're going to get a long-lasting heritage out of this and the only way to get rewarded with God's peace is to stand up for for his honor he says it's amazing what such a violent act do you see the paradox there such a violent thing to do and then he says I'm going to reward you with peace the way to get God's peace in your heart and life is to be courageous with the truth his truth to live uncompromised that will always bring peace, even when you do the hard thing. Even when you have to spear the thing, whatever it is. He told you, you know you, that needs to go. He says, I'll give you peace for that. And he rewards. So finally, it looks like um, Phineas isn't the only one who gets rewarded. Balaam gets rewarded because it worked. But he only has six chapters to spend it. Because in Numbers 31, when Israel takes revenge on the Midianites, they put Balaam to death by the sword. And we'll get there in Numbers 31. And you know, folks, he got handsomely rewarded because sin is pleasurable for a season, for six chapters. And then, you know what? Then he's got 3,400 years in a place called Hades. Hell isn't open for business yet. Hell technically opens at the great white throne at the end of the age. When the books are open, then anybody whose name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, Lake of Fire, that's hell. Where they are now is a place called Hades. It's a place of torment. 3,400 earth years. For what? Gold, notoriety, being friends with the king of Moab. What was it in for him? And it would have taken a millisecond, a whisper, a blink of an eye, a thief on the cross moment, where one second you're going, hey, Jesus, save us. We need a savior. And the next second you're like, whoa, wait a second. (laughs) Hey, I deserve this. I'm sorry. Whoa. Yeah, remember me. Boom. Eternal life 
eternal hell. Like that, that's all Balaam would have had to do. That is the horror of hell. And the blessing of the Christian is just to change your heart. That's all he wants. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love, mercy, and grace. Help us, Lord, to learn what it what you have for each one of us in the many different facets of tonight's study. We thank you for all that you're teaching us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Closing song. Lessons from Under the Acacia Grove. One, the devil's greatest strategy involves tempting you to defile yourself and break fellowship with God. By doing so, you reap pain and shame and risk destroying yourself too sin is never a private thing our sin affects others directly and indirectly three to delay doing the right thing because it's difficult will only make matters worse four like Phineas God's priests all New Testament believers are to be zealous and courageous to take a stand for God's truth honor, and righteousness. Five, there's a rich reward of peace with God for those who honor him and stand for uncompromised morality and truth. And finally, let us ever love Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and honor and serve him who he himself was pierced through for our sins to avert the wrath of God from his people he loves so dearly. So, Father, we commit ourselves to your care for those who are prone to step and stamp upon the air hose, our own air hose, for anybody kind of caught in that trap. We pray deliverance and the grace of God to be able to stop doing things that brings suffering We ask, Lord, for the grace to light up these truths in our hearts and the grace to put them into practice. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.